It's always good to worship on the Lord's Day with brothers and sisters in Christ, gathered together at the church. We're not only called to do it, but we receive a great benefit from it. And today we want to go back to Ecclesiastes. After a month, we return there to the book of Ecclesiastes to gain wisdom, to gain insight, to gain knowledge. Even from an Old Testament book, the whole Bible, remember, was inspired, not just the New. The New, of course, is giving us more information. The New reveals Christ more fully. The New makes clear the gospel to the Gentiles. But the Old has a lot for us to learn. The Old teaches us the way we shouldn't go, often as a bad example that Israel gave, but it also teaches us more about God, more about the Messiah, and of course, how to live a godly life. There were people saved before Christ came. They looked forward to the Messiah. They trusted in the promises of God. To do that, to trust in the promises of God, they had to read their Bibles. They had to learn, memorize, hear the Bible preached. And they also had to know how to live a godly life. Once they have been regenerated, once they had been faithfully saved by their covenant Lord, how do they live? Not like the nations around them. We heard about that in our class this morning on Hosea. And so we go now to Ecclesiastes once again to continue our journey with King Solomon. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And we want to see the graciousness of the wise men. The graciousness of the wise men. Let me read to you 8 verses 1 through 15. Who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight. Though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind, or authority over the day of death. And there is no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. All this I have seen and applied to my mind, to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. So then I have seen the wicked buried, those who go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is Hevel. The Hebrew word there is Hevel. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, Still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. There is Hevel, which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is Hevel. So I commended pleasure. For there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink 
and to be merry, and this will strengthen him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. We've been talking about godly wisdom in this book. We've been looking at an example, sometimes it was a bad example that Solomon gave, of what he tried that didn't work, how he chased his idols, and he told us that was unwise, that was foolish, that was sinful. But he's also told us what godly wisdom looks like. And now he's coming to that part of the book where he's showing us that godly wisdom has an effect on your life. It's not as if you get all this wisdom and it doesn't show. It's not as if in the Christian life, you study the Bible and you you come to church and you learn, and then you don't produce any fruit from that. He says godly wisdom here will produce fruit in various aspects of life. To go back a bit, just to get a, a reminder of what wisdom is, basically it's discernment. Biblical wisdom, godly wisdom is discernment. It's not knowledge where you just memorize. It's not even knowledge where you've learned theology. That's great. But it's using that in your everyday life. It's using that practically and having discernment in the decisions you make in life. You could say it's knowing how to make the right choice in life. It's knowing how to learn from your mistakes in life. It's taking all that you've learned about the Bible, putting it into practice, and learning from those mistakes that you make along the way so that you become wiser and wiser and wiser. Well, today we're talking about the graciousness of the wise. Because being wise means, and he's going to tell us in verse 1, it means that you are gracious, that you are merciful, that you are kind. Because that's who God is. God is merciful. He is gracious. He is kind. And God is known as the all-wise God. So if we want to be wise like God is wise, we have to learn from Him. We'll never be exactly like God, but we're called to be more and more like Him throughout the Christian life. Now, often when we talk about graciousness or grace, we think about the undeserved favor that God gave to us. And that's right. That's good. God did, if you're saved today, if you're a Christian today, God gave you undeserved favor. You deserve the opposite. You deserve to go to hell, to go to a prison of darkness forever, a prison of suffering. But He gave you grace, which is the complete opposite. That's God's grace given to us. Yet the Bible also talks about graciousness that a believer should show towards others. And this often comes in our response to others. How do we respond to the world around us? When people mistreat us, when the government mistreats us, when friends mistreat us, when family doesn't like to hear what we have to say about Christ. Well, Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace. Always. All the time when you talk, you're supposed to have a speech that is filled with grace. As though seasoned with salt, he says. So that you will know how you should respond to each person. This was Jesus when he taught. He dealt with a lot of challenges, didn't he? People wanted to kill him. People wanted to stone him. And they did eventually kill him and crucify him. And it says in Luke 4.22 about his teaching ministry. That all people were speaking well of him. And wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. So how do we learn grace towards others? Well, we do that through gaining godly wisdom. And then that comes out through 
gracious acts towards others. To be gracious to others, you need the wisdom of God, in other words. You need the wisdom of God, and that's what Solomon has been teaching us in Ecclesiastes. Now, I say King Solomon, if you go back to the very beginning, or even go back and listen to my message there, the name given in the book is Koaleth in Hebrew. Koaleth just means preacher, proclaimer. So many translations start the book like that. The words of the preacher. But he says he's king, he's a son of David, and he's king in Jerusalem. So we know this has to be Solomon. If we believe what the Bible says and study those passages, it has to be Solomon. And he's been teaching a group of young men, probably, in his palace, the nobility of Israel, the rulers that will come up after him. And he's been trying to train them in wisdom. But of course, this book is beneficial to all of us today. He started off making observations about his own life. And then he just talked about observations that he had made as he had gone through life. And now he's getting to the point where he's applying the truths that he's already taught. Just like when we went through the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters were on doctrine, weren't they? What we often lack so much in modern Christianity, the doctrine. And then the last three chapters of Ephesians, practice. Putting it into practice what we've learned. Well, the first, you could say, five chapters were on Solomon's doctrine, doctrine of God, doctrine of man. And he's been putting it into practice since the beginning of chapter 6. Well, let's just look at the main point of the passage. Before we even get into breaking it down, the outline that I've got, let's look at the main point, and it'll come up for you up here. The main point is the fact that a wise person will be gracious. He starts that in verse 1. The wise believer can show grace to others. It can be done. Look at verse 1. Now you ask a rhetorical question. Who is like the wise man? Who's like the wise man? Well, usually when this kind of question is asked in the Old Testament, it's expecting a negative answer. Skip forward to verse 7 of this chapter. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? The answer is no one. Who's really wise? Well, it's very rare, isn't it? In fact, Solomon told, it, told us in chapter 7, one in a thousand. He can find one in a thousand men living that are wise. Who's like the wise man? This is addressed to us. This is addressed to all that read this passage. Are you really wise is what he's saying. Are you truly wise? Do you truly have godly wisdom? And who knows the interpretation of a matter? Who knows it? This is a bit more positive. The first is, is negative. The first is challenging us. And this one is calling us in a different kind of challenge to be more wise. There are a few wise men, a few wise women who truly know how to understand the interpretation of a matter. Not the Bible, although that's important. But here he's talking about what happens, what comes about. When you see something, do you have wisdom and how you understand that event that occurred? When the elections came and went, did you have wisdom in that? Or did you think the, the sky was falling on you? When things happen in your life, do you have wisdom? Or do you freak out and run away from the problems in your life? There is a way to have wisdom and he's challenging us. The people are rare who have it, but we ought to seek it. We ought to be one of those as Christians, as followers of Christ. 
We ought to be wise. People should come to you as a Christian and ask your advice. Not because you've made a million dollars, but because you have great wisdom in the things of the Bible and how you applied that in the world. People ought to seek you out. As you grow more mature in Christ, people should come to you. How do you understand what's happening in our world? How do you understand these churches being closed and shut down in Canada? How do you understand the role of government and the role of the church? People should seek your advice. And now he tells us a man's wisdom, in verse 1, a man's wisdom illumines him. Literally, a man's wisdom gives light to his face. His face shows something different than the average person in the world. A shining face speaks of favor and grace being given. In fact, the Jews often pray, even today, and you've probably heard it pronounced in church services as well, Numbers 6, the Aaronic Blessing. And in Numbers 6.25, tell me if you've heard this, probably at a wedding even, the Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord's face shining on you means that God is being gracious to you. When God looks upon a person, when His face beams and shines at that person, not literally, but figuratively, that means they are blessed. They are receiving His grace. And the godly wisdom Solomon's teaching about here causes a person's demeanor. It causes so much of a change in their life as they grow in godliness that you'll notice it even when you look at them. Even when you look at them. And he says it causes his stern face to beam. He says a man's face has changed. It was hard. It was stern. But as he grows in godliness, it changes. He becomes more joyful. He becomes happier, you might say. He becomes more gracious, more merciful. Proverbs 15, 13 says, A joyful heart makes a cheerful face. Now, we live in a world where everybody says you can't read a person's heart. And it is challenging. People can fake what's going on inside. They can hide it. But in general, as Christians, whatever's in here should be shown here. If we're sad, then it should be there. So other people can weep with those who weep. If we rejoice, then it should be there. We should show that with our body language, with our words, so that people can be joyful with us. Scholar Dr. Bill Barrick says, Wisdom often softens one's face as a reflection of a softened heart. In other words, he says, that individual becomes more gracious, merciful, and forgiving. So that's his main point here in the chapter. If you're growing in godliness, applying discernment, using godly wisdom, you will be more gracious, and people will see it. They'll see it in the way you respond and the way you talk and even in your expressions, your body language. So how does this happen? How does this happen? When my kids woke up this morning, they were telling me, Happy Father's Day. And of course, what they're thinking is, how can I make my dad happy today, right? That's their main goal. That better be their main goal today, right? When we look at this, how can we make our Heavenly Father happy? How can we show that we've been changed and show grace to others? Well, Solomon lays out some points for us here. He starts in verse 2, and and the first thing he tells us, by obeying the rulers God has given you. That's verses 2 through 6. Now, if I was to ask you, how can you show grace towards others and, and therefore show godly wisdom? 
you probably wouldn't think of, first of all, obeying the government. In fact, we live in a time right now where this might even be something that would not, would not even be on your list of a hundred ways to be gracious towards other people. Obey the government. Obey the rulers that God has given you. But look at verse 2. I say, now here's the first thing he says after talking about wisdom. Keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Every ruler has laws. They have commands. Every government has laws. It's not even a government. It's anarchy without any kind of laws. And we must obey them. You don't get to go through the laws on driving in Texas and mark out the ones you don't like and check off the ones you like and just obey those. You'll just end up in jail. You'll lose your license. You might even hurt somebody. God has placed rulers over us. He's placed rulers over us, and we must keep our promises that we've made to God. And you say, well, I didn't make any promises to God about obeying the laws of Texas and the United States. Actually, you did. You did. When you became a Christian, you said, I trust in Christ. I give my life to him. And you know what he said? You're saved. Now follow my commands. That's what he said. And so they challenge him in the Gospels. They challenge him in the Gospels. Like in Mark 12, they bring to him uh, a question. Should we pay taxes? What does he say? Taxes are theft, right? No, that's not what he says. What does he say? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. There's a place and a time to pay taxes. And there's a time to focus on the more important things that are God's. He didn't say, don't pay taxes. He didn't say, start a militia. He didn't say, become a revolutionary. Give to Caesar. Give to the government the things are, that are the government's. Yesterday at the lake, the men's lake retreat, uh, Frank went over 1 Peter 2.13. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority. And he goes on with this list. Governors, rulers, sent by him for punishment of evildoers. God has sent these rulers to be punishers of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. There's foolish men that are accusing Christians of being rebellious. It's becoming more and more common. Now it's been that way throughout church history, but we've been kind of in a, a nice place in America where we didn't have people accusing us of being rebellious. But there was a time there that if you just met for church, you were considered rebellious. You were considered as a lawbreaker, even though no official laws were ever passed that people couldn't meet. There's coming a time where when we have divided restrooms, men and women separate, that's going to be considered rebellious. There are many states that won't allow churches to meet in schools because they want submit to the homosexual agenda. We are to follow the government. Now, there is an exception. We'll get to that. But first, let's go to Romans 13, the clearest passage. Really, Ecclesiastes 8, these first few verses, are the same theme as Paul mentions in Romans 13, 1 through 7. Go there with me, Romans 13, 1 through 7. Because some might say, well, you know, Solomon was appointed by God over the nation Israel. It's a theocracy. Of course, they're to obey their rulers. But we have pagan rulers today. We don't have to obey them, do we? 
Romans 13, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those who exist are established by God. Who was ruling at the time that Paul wrote this? Emperor Nero. He was the emperor that started killing Christians as an empire-wide persecution. Before that, it was just localized. He starts the empire-wide persecution. He's the one who burned Christians on pikes in his garden so that the Romans could look at it and have torches to light up the garden at night. He's the one who fed Christians to the lions. He started that whole thing. And Paul's saying, be in subjection to the governing authorities because God has given them for this purpose. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. We're sinning, in other words, when we disobey the government. Think about that. Think about that before you send your taxes in, if you have already done that, or even next year. Think about that. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority, Paul says? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God, literally a servant of God to you for good. Government's meant for good. Yes, man twists it. Yes, pagan leaders twist it to their own evil desires. But even then, Paul says, God has appointed them, and God means this for good. If you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. The government has the sword to punish evil. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. We want government. Even a bad ruler is better than no government at all. It's really popular these days to talk about anarchy, or even communism, socialism. Better to have a bad democratic leader than anarchy. Because at least they're still seeking to punish the worst crimes that are happening in our country, in our land. Verse 6, for because of this, you also pay taxes. There it is again. We have to pay taxes. Nothing more certain, right? Except for maybe death. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. You say, well, that doesn't fit. Remember, he's writing under Nero. He's writing under Nero. He's not saying Nero's a godly man. He's not saying Nero is doing a godly thing when he persecutes Christians. He's saying obey the government. And there's one exception which the rest of Romans really talks about. But go on, 13.7 here of Romans. Render to all what is due to them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Even when Paul went before Nero, Paul would not have been a Christian who was yelling and cursing and trying to fight. He would have submitted himself. Church history says he had his head chopped off under Nero. They took him out on a hill. They put his head up there on a log, and they just dropped the axe on it. Do you think Paul was fighting? Do you think he was grabbing weapons on his way, trying to start a revolution? Was Jesus doing that on the way to the cross? Jesus said, I could have myriads of angels, legions at my disposal. And he told Peter, put up your sword. Now later, he said they're going to take the sword on the road to protect them, self-defense. But when it comes to persecution, when it comes to the government persecuting you, The goal is not to start a Christian revolution. You can speak out. Paul did that. 
He spoke to rulers. He said, I'm a citizen of the Roman government and you're going to do this to me? I appeal to Caesar. Paul used the laws to further the gospel. But from Old Testament to New Testament, obey the government. That means don't even lie to authorities. Don't lie to authorities that God has placed over you. Government, courts, police, your boss at work, even the elders at the church. You made promises to each of these. You're a citizen of this country. You made promises. Even if you didn't sign to be a citizen, you were born in this country. And as a Christian, you are committing to follow Scripture. Now, there's only one exception to this. You might have heard about it. There's only one exception when it comes to obeying the laws of the land. Go to Acts chapter 5. And this is a key exception. So many Christians are confused on this right now. Acts 5.27 The apostles had been out preaching. And the rulers of Jerusalem had said, No more preaching in the city. Verse 27 When they had brought them, they stood before them, before the council, the Sanhedrin. So they'd been in jail. They bring them out. They'd been jailed for preaching the gospel. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Don't blame us for Jesus' death and stop preaching about him, they said. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. There's going to come a time in your life where you have to make that decision. You have to decide, is this a command from God or not? And if it is, it doesn't matter what the law says. It doesn't matter what the governor, what the mayor says. It doesn't matter what the president says. First importance is what God says. And then they go on to actually proclaim the gospel to these people, the Sanhedrin. We must obey God rather than man. If God says meet as a gathered body of believers to worship, we have to do that. We should want to do it, first of all, but let's put that aside. We should have to. I mean, we should because we're commanded. We are commanded. We have to meet together to encourage one another, to sing psalms and praises to one another, to hear the word preach, to pray. It's not an option. God commands that. We have to say a man married to a woman is the biblical standard. The government's going to try to make you say something else. That's coming. It's coming. I think there's some, something going on this month where they celebrate that. Wrongly using the rainbow out of the Bible. Obey the government. Every opportunity, every chance, obey the government. Except when God commands you to do something the government says you should not do. In other words, when they're in conflict, you choose God's commands, not the king's commands. We've got to be clear on that. Because Christians have been weak on that and suddenly they were challenged with the whole COVID thing and they're still confused. They still think, well, you know, it's preaching the gospel. That's what they did in Acts 5. But what do we preach the gospel? In the church. But Acts 5 is just dealing with the conflict happening between the law, the government, and God's law. What happens when those come into conflict? It's not just proclaiming the gospel in the streets. It's going to be anything that God commands us to do. 
back to Ecclesiastes now. So we've connected that with the New Testament teaching. Ecclesiastes 8.3, do not be in a hurry to leave him. In the ancient world, you should not get up and leave the king. That's insulting until he's dismissed you. And the teaching here is to honor your leaders. You show graciousness to others. If you have godly wisdom, you show graciousness to others by obeying the laws and honoring your rulers. Paul says to pray for them in 1 Timothy 2. Honor your leaders. Don't, don't give up and rudely leave their presence. Do not join in the evil matter, Solomon says, for he will do whatever he pleases. The king's going to do what he wants. And don't go and be involved in groups, in causes that the king might find displeasing. Again, if it conflicts with Scripture, you have to do what God says. So the government might say, don't be involved in church. doesn't matter, you go to church. But other than that, things of just preference, stay away from organizations, stay away from groups, stay away from people who are challenging the government, trying to cause disruption, things that are illegal, things that are rebellious. Proverbs 24, 21, he says, Solomon again, My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those who are given to change. Those who are given to change of opinion, they're just going this way and that way. For their calamity will rise suddenly. And who knows the ruin that comes from both of them, both from the king and from the Lord. Be careful who you associate with. Don't just join the next group that's against the government. You're a Christian. That's your first identity. That's your first priority. That's your main group that you're a part of. Your identity in Christ is most important. And other groups, be selective. Be careful. Verse 4, since the word of the king is authoritative, who's going to challenge this king and say, what are you doing? God has put rulers and governments over us. And again, unless they contradict the laws of God, we're not to cause a fuss when they do something we think is unwise. All of us can create a long list of things that we think the president and our Congress and this country is doing that's very unwise. And that's fine if you want to practice that at home. But be careful. Would you want to be interviewed by the news? Hey, we know you're a Christian. You're part of Grace Bible Church. Now tell us, what do you think about the president? You better be careful. You're representing Christ. You're representing your church. Not to say that you don't have valid complaints. But if it's not a clear command in Scripture, it's just a preference, maybe even a conviction, be careful. Verse 5, he who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble. You obey the law, you don't receive trouble. For a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. Wisdom means you know the right timing. Even if you are going to send a letter to your congressman, even if you are going to send a letter to the president, you know the right timing, the right kind of words to say, you know how to make an argument. Maybe you're involved in a legal battle. You have, hopefully, people around you with wisdom. I was told early on in defensive driving, because I got a speeding ticket way back when, that you might be right legally, but it doesn't matter if you're dead. In other words, you might have the right of way, but if you keep going and you see somebody on your side of the road coming right at you, and you insist, I have the right of way, so it doesn't matter, what's going to happen? You'll be right, but you may be dead. And that's the principle that Solomon is getting at here. You don't experience trouble if you keep the law. You know the proper time. You know the proper procedure. You know when to hit the gas and keep going. And you know when there's a car coming at you that you better slow down even though you have the right of way. 
Verse 6, for there's a proper time. Again, he picks this up, a proper procedure. You know the method of how things work. You have wisdom. You know when it's right to voice a complaint and when it's really unwise. And he says, for every delight, in verse 6. Now, I understand this, this Hebrew word. A lot of translations don't translate it as delight. I think it's good in the NASB. The idea is a good thing worth doing. You know the right time to do something. You have wisdom. It means you understand what's going on around you. You understand that the days are evil. You understand that it's not wise to get entangled with things because you want to focus on your Christian life. You want to focus on your church, your family. So be careful what you get entangled in. And he reminds us, a man's trouble is heavy upon him. Now, people interpret this differently, but it sounds very similar, scholars have pointed out, to Genesis 6-5. Because the word for trouble in verse 6 is wickedness, evil. You could say a man's wickedness is heavy upon him. Genesis 6-5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great, was heavy on the earth. In other words, if, if you let that indwelling sin as a Christian take over and cause you to do sinful things against the government? Well, you didn't use wisdom. You didn't think about the proper time and procedure. You weren't thinking about the good, delightful things that you should be doing to help others. You let your sin take over. So be careful, he's saying. We bring the government's wrath on us if we're not careful and wise. So what's the basic point here? Know how to respond to rulers. Do it in a gracious way. Respond to your government in a gracious way. Obey the government unless that is contradictory to the word of God. Secondly, second way we can be gracious in this life is by recognizing man's inherent weaknesses. Now this is key. This is what Christians often overlook. We have weaknesses. Even if you're redeemed in Christ, you still have to deal with the world. You still have to deal with the government. And you still have to deal with your own heart. So in 7 through 9, he's saying, the way we can be gracious is remember, recognize man's inherent weaknesses. We often think we're like God. We often think that we ought to be able to know all things and control all things in our life and all things that happen in the world. But we have to remember we're not like God. Not in that way. God doesn't give us his omni-attributes. The all-powerful the omniscient. A wise person, according to God's standard of wisdom, is a person who knows and believes what the Bible says about mankind and our weaknesses. So first of all, Solomon is going to tell us, man does not know the future. And so he's helpless to predict what comes. Look at verse 7. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? Only God knows these things. Only God knows these things. Let's not try to play God. You have a desire to do something, don't try to predict the future. Don't go to a, a palm reader, certainly, and don't even go to these Christian prophets who try to tell you what's going to happen in your own personal life. That's ridiculous. Read the Bible. Know what it says not to do. Know what it says to do. And then follow your heart desires if they line up with Scripture. It's that simple. Should I buy a house right now? I don't know. Some people say the market's going crazy. I shouldn't do that. Others say it's just going to go, keep going up, so you might as well buy now. Use wisdom. Use wisdom. You don't know the future. You don't know who the next president is going to be. You don't know when our country is going to go to war. 
You don't know when the next COVID-like disease is going to come and they're going to do even more shutdowns. You don't know. Stop trying to guess at what's coming. Live your Christian life now. Yes, plan for the future, but don't think that you can know it like God knows it. Also, Solomon says man does not have power. Man does not have power to control what happens in the future. Now, this is a real problem. I think most of us recognize we don't know the future. We try to pretend we do sometimes. But when it comes to power, we really think we're in control. We're the masters of our fate. We're going to certainly accomplish what we set out to do. And he says, look, verse 8, No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind. You think you can do something? You can't even turn the wind or stop the wind. It's not possible. Can you control what's happening in nature? Went to the lake on, uh, was it Friday? Completely still, muggy, hot. All we wanted was a breeze. None of the guys there did anything that caused the breeze to start coming up. We don't have that kind of power. Even if we got the most charismatic Kansas City prophet out there, he couldn't do anything. Joel Osteen couldn't do anything. Nobody can. Those guys are fake anyway, but you can't control the wind with the wind. You can't stop it. Stop complaining about the weather, right? We could all apply this. It's going to be hot this summer. It's going to be muggy. It's Texas. Texas is just heating up right now. In a couple of months, it'll reach optimum temps. It's going to freeze sometime, maybe knock all of our power and water out. Can you control that? God's just doing that to remind us, isn't he? That he's in control. He's reminding us, you know, this pipe coming into your house with water and this electricity that keeps the heat and the lights on, that's just a modern convenience. He wanted to give us a few days without that. Maybe your AC will go out this summer and he wants to remind you, you can't control the wind with the wind. You can't control all things. All these groups today ought to take this verse right here, the climate change groups, and put this verse as their motto. You can't control the wind with the wind. You can't change the climate. Now, yes, we can pollute the environment. We can cause more problems. But to think we can somehow change worldwide weather patterns is not biblical. Also, he says, you don't have authority over the day of your death. You can't control your time of death. You don't know when that's going to happen. Only God controls that. Only God controls that. We can expect the average lifespan. We can plan out. We can make plans for retirement accounts and so on. But in the end, only God knows how much time you have. Some of you don't have very much time. Others do have quite a bit of time. And none of us knows which group we're in. He says there's no discharge in the time of war. You think you can control things? You don't even know when war is going to happen. And when you're drafted to fight, you can't just leave. You can't just get out of it, declare that the war is over because you want it to be. Only God is sovereign over such things. And then lastly, he says, evil will not deliver those who practice it. A person can't escape punishment for evil and sin. You see, that's what he's getting at. People think, well, I can control Unbelievers especially. I can control what happens in my life. I'll go out and practice as much sin as I want. As long as the law doesn't catch me, I'm fine. He says, no, that's wrong. Though an evil person thinks they have escaped, it's only for a time. You don't control all things. No one does. God will make sure that that sin will find them out. And then in verse 9, he says, man does not use authority rightly. He's talked about the king. He's talked about obeying government. Now he's coming around the other side of it. 
And he says that even when man has authority, they don't use it rightly. Verse 9, all this I've seen, I've applied to my mind, I've thought about it, I've seen a lot. Every deed that has been done under the sun. He's looked everywhere. He's looked at everything he could learn from. Wherein or, or which a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. Time and time again, people have power. They have control. What's in man's heart? Sin. We're born in sin. And yes, Christ redeems us, but you even have Christian rulers who act foolishly sometimes because they still fight in dwelling sin and temptations. And Solomon says, know your heart and know what's in mankind. Rulers often bring about injustices upon the people they rule over. We need to remember this because you might be placed in authority someday. Fathers, you're in authority over your family. Do you use that authority rightly? Or do you bring about injustices in your family? Maybe in your work you're in authority. Maybe you'll be in government position somewhere in authority. Maybe you'll have authority in the church in some way. Use it rightly. And know that you're a sinner. Know that you could fall. Know that there's temptation right there. Don't think that you're perfect. Remember what happened with Peter when he thought he was perfect? What happened? He fell three times before the sun came up. So to show grace to others, we have to understand that our hearts drift towards sinfulness and idolatry. That's what he spent the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes talking about. We drift towards that. Even as redeemed Christians, sometimes we want to go back. We want to go back to sinfulness. The Garden of Eden, that was the, the first sin. What happened? I want to be like God. I don't want to be weak like mankind. I want to have the power that God has. So they ate the fruit and they brought sin into the world. So let's not do that. Third point, how to be gracious with wisdom by trusting God to make things right. And this is a big point he's continued to make throughout the book. You need to trust God and how to make things right. Verse 10, he says, I've seen the wicked buried. I went to some funerals. They were grand. They were rich. They were wealthy funerals. And these people, they used to go in and out from the holy place, the temple in Jerusalem, the place of worship in Israel. In other words, I, I've seen these funerals where everybody talks good about this person and says they were such a godly person because they went to church. But I know these people who are being buried. They're wicked, he says. And they're soon forgotten in the city where they did all the wicked deeds and they went in and out from the holy place. This too is Hevel. Now I say Hevel there because that's the Hebrew word that comes up over and over and over in Ecclesiastes. Havel, a vapor, a mist. It just means a breath. And if we understand it, then we can interpret this verse properly, because there's a lot of debate over what's going on here. Some translations even change the word forgotten to praise. Because they think, well, what's, what's futility here? He must have been praised. He was wicked. He got buried. And then people still praise him. That's futile. That's meaningless. But Havel just means a vapor. It means very temporary. It's a mist. Smoke that comes out of your car and is blown away. You can't even see it these days with all the catalytic converters and stuff. We can't change the text here and insert the word praise. That's a different word in Hebrew. The word is forgotten. So here's what it means. The wicked who acted like they loved God. 
They acted like they obeyed God. They went to the temple. They did the sacrifices. They seemed to get away with it. They seemed for a moment to get away with it. But Solomon says, just a moment. It's temporary. It's Havel. When they died, they got this grand funeral because they had money. Probably had robbed people. They were wicked because they took from the poor. Their life was just a vapor, though. What happened? What happened? They were forgotten. They were forgotten. Nobody even remembered them. Not like King David that people remembered. Not like Solomon, who greatly sinned, but is still remembered. These people were forgotten because they didn't trust in God. They faked it. They went up to the temple and faked it. And in God's timeline, God sees all things, all things in history, past, present, future, all things at once. And it's just a small little snapshot. It's a vapor. It's a mist. And he expands on this in verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Now, it is true that in our government, if men aren't punished quickly, then it encourages more people to do sin. But here he's talking about God. He's talking about how evil people go out and do evil things and nothing seems to happen to them in their life. It doesn't make sense. Now he knows. He's just voicing what people think. He's voicing what he thought at times. He knows the answer. But he says this encourages people to do more sin. In other words, God's delaying his punishment, and it makes the sinner go even further into sin. Yet I didn't get caught last time I looked at that. I didn't get caught last time I did that. Maybe I can do more. Well, God didn't do anything to me today. I've still got good health. No, God will discipline you if you're His or punish eternally if you're not His. But a day is coming. But Solomon has an answer. Verse 12, Although a sinner does evil a hundred times, this person might just keep on doing sin a hundred times thinking, I can get away with it, I can get away with it. And they may lengthen their life a bit because God's not taking it away as quick as He should in our eyes. Still I know, Solomon says, it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly. In other words, if I just look around the world, it doesn't look like the godly people are receiving the blessings. From what we can see, who's got all the power in the world? Who's got a lot of the riches in the world? Unbelievers, pagans, wicked people, people who... Take power. People who kill, murder, steal, destroy. But Solomon says, I know something. He didn't say, I've seen. Notice he doesn't say, I've seen it. I know it. I still know. That's a faith statement. I still trust in God to do what's right. I still trust God. He says, their shadow in verse 13 is not going to lengthen. It will not be well for the evil man. He will not lengthen his days like a shadow. Shadows lengthen as the day goes. That's not going to be it. They think they have a long life because they're not being punished right now. But God's going to drop the hammer. God's going to bring down judgment. He's going to bring down wrath on them. As believers, though, we've got to trust God. We've got to trust that God is doing what he sees is the best because he is good and he is God and he is sovereign over all things. It's not our standard that we have to be concerned about. It's God's standard. 
Let's go quickly to Malachi, end of your Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3. This is the very last book of the Old Testament. And God's leaving them with a challenging message. Because they've returned to the land, and there's still this issue of sin. There's still this issue of sinfulness that has to be dealt with. Malachi 3.13. There's unrighteousness that seems to be blessed. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. You say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. It would be as if Christians today threw up their shoulders, threw up their arms and said, forget it. What's the point? We're suffering. We're losing jobs. Churches are being shut down, sealed off. Christians are being more and more pushed, even in the United States, to deny their faith. What's the point? Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord. See, that's the key. Fearing God, loving him zealously, fearing him, following his commandments. Those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name, they highly praise his name. They worship him. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. He's coming back to punish God says, but he's going to spare those who are his own children. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and one who does not serve him. It may look like right now you can't tell as you look out. What's going on? I don't even know, Lord. Who's in which camp? God will know. And he will punish the wicked. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaffed. And that day... That is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. God doesn't forget. He didn't forget about Israel. He's not going to forget about the new covenant believers. He will set things right. We've got to trust him in that. And if we do trust God in that, then we can go forth and be gracious to others because we're not getting upset and worrying and getting frustrated all the time about what God is doing. I'm not going to speak to my neighbor about Christ because my neighbor is a sinner and God's not punishing my neighbor. That makes no sense. That's not how Jesus acted. Jesus loved Sinners enough to tell them the gospel. And Solomon says in 8.14, he says, There is Havel, which is done on the earth. There's more temporary vapor mist actions that are done on the earth. That is, the righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. So the people that are godly get punished like the wicked should. He's really worked up about this. But it's just temporary, he says. It's just temporary. It will be settled just like it said there in Malachi. It's only temporary. Remember, trust God. You only see a snapshot. And you think you can rule the universe better than God? He's God. Let's let him be God and quit trying to be gods ourselves. 
And so here's the solution. Verse 15. Instead of worrying, instead of getting frustrated, instead of trying to tell God how to control our weather, the government, how he does things around the world, Solomon says, I commended pleasure. I recommend it. Actually, the word in Hebrew is praise. I praise pleasure, good things, really joy. Don't think of sinful pleasure. Think of joy, mirth. There's nothing good for a man under the sun. It doesn't mean that there's not any other good things but food and drink. He's saying, here's what you should do. Enjoy the gifts that God has given you and stop worrying about what God is doing in the world. Here's what you should be focused on. Enjoying the gifts God has given you for your labor, eating, drinking, being merry, enjoying your family, having a good time with believers, worshiping with them, all the things we could throw in here to be merry, to be happy, to be joyful. Rejoice. This will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. God has given you a life from this point to this point, and that's it. That's all you've got. And you're going to spend it worrying about what's happening in the world and our government. You're going to get on Fox News every day, see the bad news that's coming, all the things they think is going to happen tomorrow, or whatever news you follow. And you're going to worry and worry and worry, and it's going to make you sick, and you're not going to enjoy the good things that God has given you. God's in control of the world. The best thing you could do is stop obsessing with what's going on in the world. You've got to be knowledgeable. You've got to be wise. But don't obsess about it. Every new conspiracy theory that comes along. Eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy the day. Enjoy good times with family and friends. Enjoy the Christian faith and what it gives us in this life even. Because God has only given us so many days. And he says, that'll stand by you. If you're praising God and thanking him for his gifts that he's given you, That'll stand by you. That'll get you by. That'll get you by. What else do you need? God gives you everything you need. What else do you need? You don't need the world's praises. You don't need to know all things. You don't need to control all things. God's grace will get you by. Trust in him. Obey the commands of the king. Understand that man is inherently weak and sinful. And you can turn around and show God's grace towards others. Because as you're wise... As you're more godly, your face will even show it. Your words will show it. Your lifestyle will show it. Let's pray right now for that kind of wisdom. Lord, give us wisdom that we don't have, only wisdom that you have. Wisdom that you can give. Wisdom that has come through Christ Jesus. Wisdom that comes to us as believers in Christ. We know that he's died for our sins. Now help us to live for him. Let us not be foolish, stumbling through the world, making mistakes and sinning. But let us be like Christ, the perfect example of wisdom and grace. Pray that you would grant this to our church. In Jesus' name, amen.